this message inspires and encourages you. For more information, please contact Nexus Church. very much. You can be seated. Oh, it's so good to be back here with you. These weekends fly by. If you're the type that likes following actual Bible, Romans chapter 5, we're going to get there in just a second. Um, it's so good to, I hope you've enjoyed the whole wing. If you were a part of our conference yesterday uh, where we talked about the nature of Christ, I, I hope Jesus got bigger for you. And I would encourage you to keep studying, keep digging, keep journeying. And then of course this morning, this is your first time with us uh, tonight. So glad you're with us and uh, you're very, very welcome. Uh, immediately after this um, service is over. Um, out in the foyer, there's a resource table there. Uh, and Robin and Linda out there, and 100% of what we make from that, um, we give to the poor and the afflicted. That's all I'm going to say about that because I've been talking about it each time. I would say if you have no intention of getting anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time. If you're going to get something tonight before you leave, if you would do that first, like the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so, because uh, we got to tear it down and, um, and, and take it to the next place. So if you could come out there uh, pretty quick. Um, so um, I was thinking about tonight's message. I sent slides for a different one. I just got so checked and stopped because I have this Good. thought. Good. And this thought is, is that next week, Pastor Nathan is going to be talking about the cross and resurrection. That's just, it's maybe. So, <laughs> so I thought, you know what? As a non-guest guest, yeah. I should use my energy to introduce Easter. And the cross of resurrection. So here's my endeavor tonight, right? I might have bitten off more I could chew. We'll see, right? In the next 35 minutes, you will understand the entire Bible. <laughs> Where the cross fits into that narrative through five words. And we're going to have a lot of fun doing it, all right? So we're going to have a lot of fun doing this. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, anytime you read a, a, a something in the Bible, you want to ask two questions. One, what happened? Two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? This is what it says. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Something that sets Christianity apart from any other religion of the time or maybe ever since, and that is Christianity is a religion that celebrates a God that makes the first move. That while we were, every other religion in Jesus' day was you make the first move. You go to that God's temple at that God's point, at that God's place, at that God's posture and do that God's ritual. And maybe God will respond to you moving first, not the God revealed in Christ. The God revealed in Christ set himself apart and said, I'll make the first move. I will consent in love for you and then humbly wait for you to consent back. This sets it apart. And this is a beautiful revolutionary story. And it's still, but it's even more beautiful and revolutionary when you put it on the backdrop of what things were. Now, to understand this, we've got to go all the way back to Abraham. And if you're, if, if you're the type that needs things real, real simple, here's a real, real simple framework. And then we're going to fill in the specifics, okay? That the Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. And one way to understand it is, is that God never changed. God never changed. But what we read in the Bible is how they understood God changing over and over and over and over again, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. And what we find is, two key words here, the more they understood about God, the closer he got and the nicer he got. So what we see in the scripture narrative is that the earlier narratives, God is further 
The later narratives, God is closer, leading to the risen Christ. The earlier narratives, God is meaner. The later narratives, the, the more they understood about God, the nicer and nicer and nicer and nicer and nicer and nicer he got. Let me see if I can explain this through five words. I'm going to do it in a way that hopefully you never forget because social scientists tell me you're going to forget 96% of everything I say by Wednesday. That's highly depressing because I've worked hard on this, okay? But they say I can increase your retention if we repeat things, and then I can, re I can increase your retention more if we do motions, all right? So I want you to understand this narrative of closer and nicer. Let's deal with closer first. Let's go back to ancient Sumeria and a guy named Abraham. You can read about him in Genesis. Abraham lived in ancient Sumeria, a place, modern-day Iraq, Babylon, these sorts of places. Now, if you lived in ancient Sumeria and you wanted to communicate with God, where did God live? This is before the Bible. This is before scriptures. This is before temples. This is before anything like that. These were like ancient, ancient people. If you wanted to communicate with God in Abraham's day, where did God live? And the answer was up. All right. So for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Abraham's day, God lived, we're going to take our thumb and do that. And we're going to say up. See, everybody's with me already. Ready? All right. So let's practice that. Okay. In Abraham's day, God lived up. All right. A way more gusto. Okay. Way, way more gusto. Let's try that again. In Abraham's day, God lived up. All right. One more time with maybe even 20% more gusto than that. Cause I want you to remember it. Okay. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Yes. So Abraham thought God lived up in the sky. Now we know from the Bible that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Is he a bad guy? No. Think, think about it. If your concept of God is that God is somewhere up in the sky and you go out during the day and you look up at the sky, what is obviously the most powerful thing in the sky? The sun. So that must be God. These weren't bad people. They were going with what they knew. And the problem with the sun is every day the sun goes away. So there must have been a God of the day, the sun, and then what would have been the God of the night? The moon. And then there's a whole bunch of other things in the sky. Those must be the smaller gods. So here was the thought. The thought was the sun must be the God Almighty. That must be the thing in charge. That's the most powerful thing. Until by observation, because you can look straight at the moon and you can write things down about this moon, they observed through re repetition that the moon goes through a predictable 28-day cycle. That every 28 days, the moon renews itself. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. And they started to see that this happened every single 28-day cycle, which led them to this observation. What else in creation operates predictably on a 28-day cycle? Half the room should know this. Women, right? <laughs> Half the room. I can, see, I can see where the guys are like, what's he talking about, Jill? My goodness. You know that... You know that thing that comes around roughly every 28 days, and if it doesn't, you got to panic and go to the chemist shop, right? That, right? That is, that is a 28-day cycle. And here was the logic. Wow. The moon must be in charge of the women's mood and the women's fertility. How powerful is this moon? So if there's a full moon out, you better get out of the cave. <laughs> But if um, when the new moon comes, it's going to be a better night. This is how that worked. But for right now, all I want you to remember is that in Abraham's day, God lived up. In Abraham's day, God lived up. And if you're an ancient Sumerian farmer, what do you need to come out of the sky so that you will survive? 
rain. And the gods of the sky must be controlling the water coming out of the sky. And if the gods are happy, just the right amount of water will fall. And if the gods are, are, are ticked off, they will withhold the water and will die. And if gods are really ticked off, they send too much water and we really die. This was how they thought about that, which leads to this question. What must we do to please the gods of the sky? I'll get to that in a second. For right now, all I want you to know is that in Abraham's day, God lived up. And 430 years later, a guy named Moses comes along. And Moses is like, no, God doesn't live up. That's ridiculous. God lives in a tent in the middle of camp because that's less ridiculous. And so he puts God into this tent, 45 foot long, 15 foot wide, 15 foot high tent, covered it in animal hair, right? He ran into a little bit of a problem because people said, look, if people ever actually walk in there, they're going to realize it's just furniture. And Moses is like, no, here's what we'll do. We'll tell them if they walk in there, they'll die. Of course, there's no record of that actually happening. Of course, it was a mobile tent, right? So what if you were in charge of setting it up and tearing it down? When did you die? And what if you were in charge of putting the last stake in the Holy of Holies? What, did you get like a 60-second alarm? Get out of there. Beep, beep, beep. I don't know. I don't know. But it was a giant leap in the right direction. As a matter of fact, they kept getting confronted with the fact that God was relegated to a certain structure, right? There was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who ransacked the Holy of Holies, stole the furniture. He didn't die. Tiglath-Pileser, he ransacked the place. He didn't die. 157 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes put pig's blood in the Holy of Holies, and he didn't die. 63 BC, Pompey Magnus said, I'm going to walk into the Holy of Holies, and if your God kills me, all of Rome will convert to Judaism. And Pompey Magnus walked in there, and he didn't die, which is finally why when Jesus finally died for the world the first thing all four gospels record is and the temple veil tore in other words where you thought god was it was bigger than you ever imagined but but if you move the whole world from thinking god is up in the sky to god lives in a tent in the middle of camp that is a giant leap in the right direction is that a word from god Yes. Is that the final word of God? No. The final word of God is the risen Christ. But that's a giant leap in the right direction. So, for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Moses' day, God lived in a tent. And we're going to take our finger and do like that. All right? So let's practice, okay? In Abraham's day, God lived up. More gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. Yes, God is getting closer. So from Abraham to Moses, their understanding of God, God never changed. But their understanding of God was up there somewhere far away to I think God's closer than we think. I think he lives in a tent amongst us. Now that's a giant move in the right direction. Then a guy named David comes along. David's like, no, God doesn't live in a tent. It's ridiculous. Quite frankly, embarrassing. What happened was, was David became the head of state. And when David as a king would go visit other kings, he'd say, where's your God's temple? And they were these magnanimous things. And then when those people would come and say, where's your God's place of dwelling? David would say, that tent over there. <laughs> David said, this is not bringing, it's, it's sad that our God does not have as much glory as these other gods. We got to build him a temple, right? And David starts the process, Solomon finishes it, but for tonight, we'll say in David's day, God lived in a temple and we'll point up. Like this, like sort of like that. So let's practice with a whole lot of gusto, okay? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. In David's day, he lived in a temple. And Jesus comes along. And they start saying radical things about this guy. They said things like, 
and the word became flesh. In other words, the thing that was present in the beginning that created all things, I think it has invaded a human being and is living amongst us, teaching us how to live. Do you understand the beauty of the arc of the story? Like in Abraham's day, God lives up. In Moses' day, he lives in a tent. In David's day, he lives in a temple. By Jesus' day, their concept of God was ready to receive the idea that God lived in flesh. So for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Jesus' day, God lived in, we're going to tap our hand and say flesh. Let's practice that. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. In David's day, he lived in a temple. In Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. God's getting closer. So in the same Bible... From Abraham to Jesus, you go from this concept of up to tent to temple to, is God walking around teaching us how to live? That is a massive, this is what makes Jesus, if you've ever wondered, why are those crazy scriptures in the Old Testament? This is why. Because it gives Jesus more meaning. That there was a day that they thought God was untouchable to now there's a day that God is actually walking around teaching us how to live is a massive leap in the right direction. Then the rest of the New Testament start making radical claims. Like they said things like, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? In other words, Paul, James, John, Peter, they start claiming that the spirit of God we thought was relegated to a building is actually not just in one person, it's been gifted by that one person to us. So in Paul's day, when we ask where does God live, we're going to do our hands like this, and we're going to say us. All right, so let's practice. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. In David's day, he lived in a temple. In Jesus' day, he lived in flesh. In Paul's day, he lives in us. God's getting closer. As the Bible gets closer to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ, what you see is that their concepts of God understood that God was closer than ever before. But we also have to understand that he got nicer. Now, did God ever change? No, God was always who he was. It was their concept change. So let's go back to Abraham. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Abraham's day, God lived up. Now, what do we need to come out of the sky? We need rain. And what must we do to get that rain? we got to make sure the gods are okay with us. Which led to this question. What must I do to appease the gods of the sky? There's no scriptures. No temples. You're guessing. What must I do to appease the gods of the sky so that we get the right amount of rain so we don't die? So in Abraham's day, God lives up. But when you ask the question, what must I do to please God? Here was the answer. Ready? I'm going to show it to you with emotion. Yeah, I don't know. So let's practice that together. Ready? Here we go. Shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, I don't know. All right? In Abraham's day, what, must it, what did you have to do to please God? Yeah, I don't know. All right? Let's, let's do that with a little more gusto, okay? In, in Abraham's day, what did you, you have to do to please God? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So when you don't know, what do you do? You make it up. And if you make it up with enough gusto... People buy it. So, ancient Sumerian culture said, here's what brings rain. First, if you've offended the gods, and the gods are going to withhold the rain, you can get right with God by cutting yourself. Now, here's the problem with that, right? If I say, you can appease God by cutting yourself, what's your question? How many cuts and what must I cut? 
And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know. So one sect of ancient Sumerian culture said, here's what you do. You just cut till it rains. Right. They lived in ancient Iraq. You have people with their arms falling off. Because here's the problem. What if you do 10 cuts? But the magic number is 11. And you go to bed not knowing, have I done enough to bring my community out of danger by appeasing the gods of the sky? So the first answer was, you can appease God by cutting yourself. The second answer was, you can appease God by sacrifice. Now, here's the problem with that. If I say, hey, you can get God to be nice to you by sacrificing and giving us rain, what is your question? Your question is, what must I sacrifice? And more importantly, how much of what must I sacrifice? And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know. So what did they do? They started offering more and more and more sacrifice. And it still wasn't raining. So one sect of ancient Sumerian culture said, you know what? Here's, we need to quit guessing. The gods of the sky cannot possibly reject us if we give our most valuable thing. And our most valuable thing are our firstborns. So that sect of ancient Sumerian culture started sacrificing their firstborns in order to appease the gods of the sky in order to bring rain. Now... It's in that context that God shows up to a guy named Abraham. And he says, hello, Abraham. My name is El Shaddai. I love the grace of God with Abraham. In other words, you believe in a lot of gods. you got to be wondering who's in charge. That's me. I'm God Almighty. Abraham's response is essentially, well, at least you're the one talking. What do you expect from me, El Shaddai? And El Shaddai meets Abraham right where Abraham thinks God is. In Abraham's world, you had to cut yourself and you had to sacrifice to please God. So El Shaddai says, first thing I want you to do is I want you to circumcise yourself with a rock. Which is an odd command to a 90-year-old man was pick up a rock, swing hard, don't miss. Right? <laughs> like you ever seen a 90-year-old man? His hand shakes, his eyesight's not real good. You imagine, hey, say a prayer for me, sweetheart. This is going to be interesting. I hope I can get this in one go. This is unbelievable. In other words, El Shaddai's like, you think you have to cut. I'm going to meet you right where you think I am, and then I'm going to make the story better. So Abraham is told to circumcise. Now for us, circumcision is barbaric, something we would call the law. But why is circumcision the nicest thing ever said about God ever at the time it was written? Why? In Abraham's world, how much did you have to cut? I don't know. How many times can you possibly circumcise yourself? Once. Like if you could circumcise yourself twice, you'd a man. I don't know, right? Right? In Abraham's world, you could maybe have to cut yourself ten times. God says, if you think you have to cut, that's fine. I'll meet you right there. But we're going to cut once. One off and then we're done with this cutting business, right? Second thing El Shaddai says to Abraham is he says, I want you to kill your kid. That's odd. But, but if you go back and read the story, what's weird is Abraham doesn't ask why. And he doesn't ask how. If somebody said to you, God wants you to kill your kid, you'd at least go, what? Why? Not Abraham. It says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Why did Abraham know how to do that? Because that was the done thing. And why would you go to a high place? Because God lives up, yes. So Abraham go, takes Isaac to a high place, and he goes to sacrifice him. Why? Because that's just what God's want. God meets Abraham right where Abraham thinks God is, 
and then he moves them to a better story from there. Uh, according to Karen Armstrong, the great, uh, the great God historian, she says this is the first time in the history of any civilization anywhere in the world from anything that's ever been written down where a God stopped the sacrifice and provided another one. And so this God says, no, 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 no. Abraham, here's an idea. Instead of killing children, let's kill goats. Right? Because when you're the first person to get the idea, hey, instead of killing children, let's kill animals. Is that a good move or a bad move? That's a good, yeah, don't think too hard about that. Is that a good move or a bad move? That's a really good flipping move. Is that the word of God? You better believe that's the word of God. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God is the risen Christ. But that's a giant leap in the right direction. So Abraham learns that God's nicer than he thought. And instead of killing the kid, he kills the animal. Here's the problem. Where does Abraham live? In ancient Sumeria. So he comes down off the mountain and Isaac's still living. What do his neighbors think is going to happen? Drought. The gods are going to be angry. You got to, Abraham, you better get back up there and kill your kid. It is highly unfortunate, but we all had to do it, and our grandpappies had to do it, and our great-grandpappies had to do it. This is a horrible thing, but you're going to bring a judgment on all of us. You're going to do that. But Abraham says, no, I've learned that God is nicer than we think, and we can kill animals instead of children. The Talmud tells another side of the story, which I think is so beautiful. It says that Abraham was so moved by the compassion of El Shaddai that he went into his room of idols in his house, and he took an axe, and he destroyed all the idols in the room of idols in his house, except for one. And he stood the one, and he put the axe in his hand. So, the next day, when his father came in and said, Abraham, what happened in here? And Abraham said, I don't know. There must have been a fight amongst the gods, and that one must have won. Why? Because the kindness of God leads you to do all kinds of awesome things. Let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. Okay, more gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. How much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Now, Abraham's God was a God named El Shaddai. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Who's Isaac's God? El Shaddai. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Who's his God? El Shaddai. Jacob has 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. Twelve children have twelve children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 144 kids have twelve kids. Who's their God? El Shaddai. The math is getting too hard. Who's their God? El Shaddai. Twenty generations later, there is no God but El Shaddai. No other name other than El Shaddai. It's in our verses. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our websites. It's in our fundamental truths. There is no God but El Shaddai. Then Moses comes along. And Moses is a premeditated murdering fugitive. <laughs> I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. <laughs> Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. Being taught that God was the son named Ra. And the son is named Ra and it is made of fire. So Moses' concept of God is that God is a fire. A fire that if you tick him off, he will consume you. So Moses is out in the wilderness. And how does God choose to meet Moses? As a, a fire. God will meet you where you think he is and then move your story to something better. God is always humble enough to meet people where they think he is and then move them to a better version of that story. So Moses is out there, and there's this burning bush. But this is a different sort of fire. It's not one that consumes things. This fire isn't even hurting the most flammable thing in the desert. 
As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. You will live your whole life terrified of the consuming fire of the sun god Ra, or by faith you'll embrace the refining fire of a loving Yahweh, who although he will perfect you, he will never harm you, for the bush was not consumed. So he says, hello Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does Moses say? What you would expect. Oh, hello El Shaddai. Why? Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. He says, hello El Shaddai, I'm going to take my shoes off. And the burning bush says, no, my name is yud Hey vav I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, Moses is confused, and so would we be. Moses argues with a talking bush and says, no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. Everybody knows that. It's in our verses. It's in our websites. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our fundamental truths. And the burning bush says, no, I introduced myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, yud Hey vav Hey, they didn't know me. Moses says, yud Hey vav Hey." Now, you got to understand a little bit of Hebrew to understand this. yud Hey vav Hey in Hebrew is unsayable. The letters don't go together. It'd be like me saying, my name is Flavin Shavan <laughs> Come again, Shavan Flavin. What? Yude Vave. What? Yude Vave. It's not even a word. I know. My name is Yude Vave. What does that even mean? It means I am what I am. Oh, great, because that clears it up, right? So Moses, think about this. Just think about this logically for a second. Moses goes back to the Israelites and he tells them the name they thought God was for 20 generations is incomplete. How are they going to respond to that? Not well. You imagine that? Hey, I know you've been taught your whole life that God's name is El Shaddai, but I just met him and his name isn't just El Shaddai, it's also Yud Hey Vav Hey. <laughs> How does that go? Like, what? Yud Hey Vav Hey. Moses, what? Yud Hey Vav Hey. Moses, it's not even a word. I know, I know. He told me his name's yud heh vav Where would he tell you this, Moses? In the wilderness. Was anybody else there to witness that? No. How'd he tell you? Talking bush. Which leads to this observation. Right? And they didn't buy it. And neither would you. And neither would I. Jewish history tells us they didn't buy it until he parted the Red Sea and brought water out of the rock. That started to lend credibility to his story. But his understanding of God was getting God closer as the air that we breathe. Moses then gets inspired by God to write a book called Leviticus. Again, a book we think is barbaric, law, ridiculous, right? But in history, Leviticus was the nicest book about God ever written in the history of the world up to that time. Why? It was the first book from any civilization anywhere in the written world where God put a limit on sacrifice. Up until Leviticus, how much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Leviticus says one sacrifice per family per year, and you can know you're okay with God. What? Oh, and by the way, um, we're going to circumcise everybody on the eighth day. That way they never remember it. And then we're going to forbid putting any cuts on people's bodies from that point on. I promise you, when Moses wrote that, nobody ever thought we would be in 2021 arguing about whether or not it's a sin to have a tattoo. This was a group of people wondering, 
is this God going to make us cut ourselves? Moses is like, no, 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 no. Okay, yes, we're going to cut, but only on the eighth day, and then no more cutting ever again, and one sacrifice per family per year. So in Moses' day, how much did you have to sacrifice? Once. How much did you have to mutilate? Once. God's getting nicer. Let's review with gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived up. How much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. In David's day, God lived in a temple. The rules don't change. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. And then in Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. In Jesus started making God nicer than anyone thought possible. He started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Okay, so when I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is yes. All right, so let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. <laughs> Like there's this one time, there was this tax collector up a tree to see what he could see. Presumably he was short. And it says that Jesus stops the whole crowd and says, Zacchaeus, I'm eating with you. And Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus. He says, hey, here and now, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And what does Jesus say? That's it. Salvation has come to your house. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved by giving half of what you have to the poor? Why is this so radical? See, in Jesus' day, what was the only way for Zacchaeus to be forgiven? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So what do you do when your job forbidden you entrance to the only way salvation could come? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power. He sees his heart change and his response, and he says, that's what I'm talking about. Well, there's this one time. It says Jesus went by a prostitute's house, which leads to this question. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. <laughs> What's going on at a prostitute's house in the first century? Business. Jesus is between customers, which leads to this question. Would there be a worse place to ever run into Jesus? That'd be weird. Imagine the guy coming out of the back room. And he's like, oh, Jesus. Hey, man. I was just here to use the toilet. And it says the prostitute was so moved by his compassion that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus say? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? <laughs> Can you get saved by washing his feet with your hair? <laughs> and aren't you glad that's not the rule? See, we tend to say Jesus is the only way. Fair enough. But sometimes what people mean by that is my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus. 
What you find in the scripture is something more beautiful. You find Jesus meeting people where they think he is and honoring any response. Like with all respect to my bold brothers in the room. You. Yes, sir. Oh, man, that's a good one. I would never offend a man of your size either, right? But, but, but honestly, aren't you glad you don't have to wash his feet with your hair to be saved? I mean, with all respect to you and all my bald brothers in the room, for you to wash his feet with your hair would be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. <laughs> what was the only way for the prostitute to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? So what do you do? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power. He sees her heart respond, and he goes, a heart response is all I'm looking for. Today, forgiveness has settled over you. God's nicer than you think. There's this one time. Jesus is having a pretty bad day, right? And he ends up on a cross. Would you all agree with me that's a bad day? Lots of stress. And the way he ended up there was pretty unjust, actually. It was... um, this trial in the middle of the night so that no one could speak up for him. It was quite a terrible thing, actually. And even in the middle of that, there's this guy who's having an equally back day next to him. And he can't breathe. It's part of crucifixion. You can't breathe. And he says, hey, man, please remember me. That's all he can say. That's all he has the breath to say. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, Bo, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2021. Imagine that if Jesus was like, 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 say the sinner's prayer. What's the sinner's prayer? It's a prayer they make up in 1830 to help people connect with me, and I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's Romans? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but, Bo, you better hurry up. <laughs> what? No! What was, what was the only way for the guy on the cross to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? That guy, for that guy to be saved, he'd have to get off the cross, run to the temple, find a priest, offer sacrifice, come back, get a woman. Like, Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power, and he sees his heart response, and he says, that is enough for me. So in Jesus' day, how much did you have to sacrifice? None. How much did you have to mutilate? None. God's getting nicer. God's getting nicer than anybody ever thought possible. As a matter of fact, Jesus was like, good night, what year is it? You've heard it said one sacrifice per family per year. How about one sacrifice for the whole world for all time? How about that? So what you find is that the final revelation of God in the risen Christ was nicer than anything anybody ever thought possible. So much so they couldn't handle it, so they killed him, which sort of created the sacrifice, which was ironic, right? Let's review with some gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. How much do I have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much do I have to mutilate? I don't know. Most day God lived in a tent. How much do I have to sacrifice? Once. How much do I have to mutilate? Once. David's day God lived in a temple. How much do I have to sacrifice? Once. How much do I have to mutilate? Once. In Jesus' day God lived in flesh. How much do I have to sacrifice? None. How much do I have to mutilate? None. Whoa. Do you see why the gospel was so radical? A radically accepting God who only wants consent to his consent? But then there's this guy named Paul. And in Paul's day, God lived in us. And the writers of the New Testament started making a radical claim. And that is this. That what you saw on the cross of Jesus Christ did not inaugurate a new reality. It simply manifested what God has been like all along. 
six different places by four different authors. It says Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, he was chosen before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, but in these last days was made manifest so you could see it. Revelation 13.8, blessed are those whose names are found written in the book of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, your salvation was given to you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 4.3, Jesus' sacrificial work was completed before the foundation of the world. And my personal favorite, Hebrews chapter nine didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of animals to take away your sin but God simply let you do that because your conscience needed to be appeased and he met you where you thought he was and moved it forward from there for don't you know that Jesus died before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages that is such an the culmination of the ages does that sound like a Jewish theological principle no that sounds like a rock festival where'd you go last weekend. I went to the culmination of the ages. It was awesome. First John chapter 1, for we know that all these things have been true since the beginning, but now we have seen it all with our own two eyes. In other words, Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. Jesus simply showed us what God was always like from the beginning, that God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. And by the way, this is the only thing that makes Christianity make any sense. Otherwise, if someone said, explain the gospel to me quickly, it sounds like this. Ah. Uh, God created the world, and even though he was God, he lacked the foresight to foresee human rebellion. So when humans rebelled, it sort of shocked him, and he had to rack his God brain as to what to do. And even though he was God, his best idea was to send his only son to the earth on a suicide mission where he'd be tortured and killed. And his son went through with the suicide mission, but unfortunately, it didn't work that well because most people are going to burn in hell forever with no hope of ever getting out, and God never gets what he wants anyway. Join us. Come on! The good news is better than that. It's God created the world. And because he was God, he was able to foresee human rebellion. And he loved his creation enough not to destroy it, but to fix the whole broken thing before it started. But they wouldn't buy it without seeing it. So finally, he showed them by coming into earth as a man and dying for the whole world. You want to know how far God went? I fixed it all before the foundation of the world. But now you won't believe it without seeing it. So I'll show it to you so you can know how far I went. And some people called that good news. Yeah. I'm going to need the musicians back up now. Because that, my brothers and sisters, is a 36-minute presentation of the whole Bible. <laughs> and where the cross fits into that historical arc in five words. Let's review. With some gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. Oh, how much have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses day God lived in a tent. How much have to sacrifice? Once. How much have to mutilate? Once. And David's day God lived in a temple. How much have to sacrifice? Once. How much have to mutilate? Once. And Jesus' day God lived in flesh. How much have to sacrifice? None. How much have to mutilate? 
None. In Paul's day, God lived in us. And when was the sacrifice completed? Before the foundation of the world that Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. Like God was real grumpy and then he hurt somebody and became less grumpy. That is dumb. That Jesus showed us the physical manifestation of what God was always like. He was always like Jesus. Exactly like Jesus. He had always been like Jesus. We do not know that. But now we do. So, my brothers and sisters, may we tell the story in a way that sounds like good news. May we present an image of God that is more Christ-like. May we never be handed over to the self-inflicted intrinsic consequences of my non-consent to God's consent for me. May we know deep in our soul that Jesus came to suffer with our story in order to make a better narrative, to free us all from the wrath of death. And may we learn to see the world through the lens of how that person, the God revealed in Christ, saw the world so that we can show the world what it looks like to be profoundly connected to what happened before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages. Thanks for letting me be a part of your night, guys. Grace and peace.